1: hello and welcome to new books in irish studies a podcast channel in the new books network today we're talking to renee fox an associate professor at uc santa cruz where she also serves as the jordan stern presidential chair for dickens and 19th century studies as well as being the co-director of the wonderfully named center for monster studies she's co-edited quite a lot of collections in irish studies irish literature and the literature of monsters as well as writing for journals like Victorian Studies, the Irish University Review, and the New Hibernia Review. And her new book is The Necromantics, Reanimation, the Historical Imagination and Victorian, British, and Irish Literature, just released with Ohio State University Press. Professor Fox, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So maybe we could start with just a very general question. Who exactly is being reanimated in your book? Who are the central subjects that you're studying? (laughs) an excellent question.
0: So, um, there are, there are the expected monsters, the things that you might expect to be reanimated in a book like this. So there are vampires and mummies and a few zombies, Frankenstein creatures across the 19th century, the occasional murdered wife. Um, and then there are maybe the more unexpected characters. So, um, some, some ancient funerary statues and an Irish bard or two, Dickensian characters and other realist novel characters. Um, There's an ancient Roman named Valerius who's really grouchy about the whole reanimation thing. Um, And then there's, there's the literary corpus in general. So there are romantic ideas about life and embodied history that get reanimated in later Victorian texts. There are historical stories being reanimated in new poetic forms. And then there there are the nineteenth century texts we read that are all brought back to life by the ways that we that we read them. So a lot of the the book is about is about reading and reading itself as an act of reanimation. And, you know, the the those those monsters and those texts move from Mary Shelley at the beginning of the nineteenth century to to Bram Stoker at the end of nineteenth the nineteenth century. and um and kind of traverse a lot of territory in between.
1: Mm-hmm. I might I might kind of ask you about that, like that territory or maybe like the bigger context within which all of this is happening. I, I was thinking about how, like, as I was reading your book, there's obviously you're talking about like literal reanimation, um, but there's also these kind of like abstract reanimations and resurrections that are going on at the same time, um, like nations getting reborn or the Catholic Church putting this big emphasis on resurrection, um, things like electricity as a kind of a reawakening um, or re-enlightening of Europe. The famine is just a place where a lot of people are going to die, but maybe we'll come back. So, so what are the bigger the bigger contexts historically and socially within which this reanimation is is becoming so important?
0: So all of the all of those contexts that you mentioned to me are important to me, except um maybe for Catholicism, which I um I push aside and don't talk about the contexts that interest me are, are primarily um secular ones. But so so there are the 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 absolutely literal reanimated corpses that make their way through this book, but um, but as you suggest, the 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 corpses themselves are often operating um, metaphorically, even as they're operating literally in these texts. And so I think a lot about history itself as an act of resuscitation. Um, I talk about some nineteenth-century historians like um, the French historian Jules Michelet and um, the Irish historian Standish O'Grady. Um, William Godwin in the late 18th and early 19th century, these these writers who are really interested in theorizing um history and how how you write history as a kind of resuscitative act. And um, and that question of of history itself as an act of reanimation works its way through the whole of the 19th century. Um, of course, I'm interested in the Irish literary revival, which is one of the the um operating um really foundational things that that organizes the book as a whole. Um you know, thinking about the Irish literary revival and these um, these 19th century historians who aren't necessarily all Irish in relationship to one another. Um, and built into that, as you suggest, is absolutely the idea of nations getting reborn and how nations can, can get reborn um, related to the language revival, things like the GAA. So all of those, you know, all of those kinds of um, uh Revival formations that are so um, intrinsic to Ireland are also kind of working their way across other um, other national cultures in the nineteenth century. Um, I do, as you suggest, talk a lot about electricity. Less is maybe a, a, an underlying metaphorical concept, and more as a really useful mechanism that a lot of the writers that I talk about use to to um, to imagine reanimation. There are a number of writers who who um, who use electricity as a metaphor for the work that their own literary texts do and then there are the writers who who quite literally imagine electricity bringing their dead things back to life and um and electricity in those contexts is often um, a stand-in for certain kinds of forces of modernity um also for for a, a a kind of way to pitch the old against the new to pitch the ancient against the modern and and figure out you know what kinds of of productive ways those two things can clash. Um the famine isn't something I deal with a huge amount but I do talk about it a little bit at the very beginning of the book in the context of Jane Wilde um Speranza her her poetry. Um so you know her most her most famous poem the famine year um which um Amy Martin talks about really wonderfully as a zombie poem is this poem that that is a dramatic monologue that imagines all of these dead um uh, these dead people in the famine back to life. Um, so it gives them voices and then also projects them like rising in this crazy zombie army and destroying the British people whose policies all, you know, uh, all killed them. And so, um, so that's, you know, that's a poem that I talk about a little bit and then I, and then I move on from there, but, um, but so the famine does come in, does come in just at the very beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so like other than Lady Wilde, when I think of a lot of the things you're talking about here, let's say science, the historical profession. Um, and then you, you kind of started by saying that your book is it kind of bookends the 19th century by starting with the with Frankenstein's monster and ending with Dracula. These are potentially all very male or or they just literally are very male things. So do only men get to be reanimated? Like <laughs> where are the dead women? <laughs>
0: I mean, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of women who who get to be reanimated. Um in the story I'm telling there aren't a lot of women who get to do the reanimating. Um although Mary Shelley and Wilde as as you say are are really important people to me and I think that there's definitely an argument to be made, it's not the one that I make, but I think there absolutely is one to be made about women bringing dead things back. Um Back to Life. And I think that that story would still include Shelley and Wilde. It would probably include Emily Bronte and Christina Rossetti and Lady Gregory and, you know, a number of others that I'm not thinking of and and would focus, I think, quite a bit on on revival as a kind of um, maybe a kind of retribution for male violence or as a writing back against certain kinds of um, of masculinist or misogynist ethos. But the story that I end up being most interested in in this book is is really focused on um, I would say anxieties about creative prowess that are really often tied to questions of masculinity. So, um, like in the early 18th and 19th centuries, I'm thinking a lot about the relationship between masculinity and sympathy in various theories about one's capacity to inhabit and embody the past. Um, there's this really wonderful book by by Mike Good that that deals with this that I um, that I use quite a lot. Um, and in the later 19th century, um, there are questions about colonial inflected debates over who owns what kinds of knowledge and, um, and how those debates are playing out in literature. Um, those debates are quite often played out against violences or sort of through or with violences against, um, against female bodies. Um, a lot of the texts I'm working on are, are quite invested in the, the pretty big gap, much bigger than expected between creating and reanimating that begins with Shelley and Frankenstein, but really comes to the fore in the hands of the male writers who adopt her work in later parts of the 19th century um, or in poets like Robert Browning, who absolutely agonizes over, over the distinction between creating and reanimating and, and the different kinds of, of powers that are intrinsic to those two different forms. Um, so I would say, I mean, maybe one of the things I'd say is that, is that there is a huge amount of ambition, but also a huge amount of failure in the the necromantic texts I talk about as they work through this possibility of reanimation. And most often, although, again, maybe not always, um, these texts that I found that made reanimated bodies central to their preoccupation with the dynamic between ambition and failure um, in their own artistic practice, in their relationships to history, whether they're reflecting on the nature of historiography or on the power of literary form or on national or cultural revival, these texts are usually being written by male writers. Mm
1: -hmm. I might go back to this thing you mentioned of the the clear distinction that you make, and, and it seems like some of the writers you're studying also make between reanimating dead bodies versus bringing something new into life where nothing had existed before what's the difference like why does it matter how you're creating some kind of new type of monster
0: (laughs) um well the question of newness i think is really essential there so um you know so when i when i started this project i just assumed that frankenstein would be would be the beginning of the story like i mean that's you know that's our reanimated monster in our in 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 culture really when you when you think about it the kind of er, er, zombie creature and then when i went back to Shelley's novel and I I really read it what I realized is that this isn't actually a novel about bringing anything back to life it's a novel about creating something new and it you know it does some some work in in graveyards and charnel houses in order to furnish the bits but once those bits are furnished it is absolutely uninterested in those bits in their history in their pasts it's really invested in this idea of creating a new species how you know how a human comes into being it's you know in in this idea of the human and i thought okay well that's what's happening in the novel but that's not how this story has become part of our cultural space so so when did it change like how did it change how did how did this this story go from being about creating a human to a story about bringing dead things back to life and and i realized that that story shifted um with various theatrical adaptations of shelley in the early part of the 19th century and then and then that's what culture ran with and so um so what what i became quite interested in is um is this idea that that on the one hand we have this you know we have this novel that's about imagining something into being that's never existed before and then we have all these adaptations that are about recognizing that even the newest seeming things are actually comprised out of pieces of the past um they're selected and they're recombined until they take whatever form you want them to so it's a difference between creativity on the one hand, full stop, and then this other realization that everything comes from something that's already there, something that you might have to be accountable to, something that might have agency of its own. And this is actually a transition that Shelley herself makes between writing the novel in 1818 and and um, writing a new introduction to the third edition in 1831. Um, and in that they t- um in that 1831 edition, she's she she's talking about the origins of this novel. So she 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 gets quite invested in this question of origins that isn't really part of the novel itself in 1818. And one of the things that she says, kind of one of the most famous set of lines in this in, in this 1831 introduction, she says, invention doesn't consist in creating out of void, but out of chaos. The materials must, in the first place, be afforded. It can give form to dark, shapeless substances, but cannot bring into being the substance itself. So, you know, we go from creating something entirely new to theorizing art as this resuscitative practice, as something that has to take these, you know, these these things that are already there and and breathe new life into it and make those old things into something new. And so what I argue in the in the book is that as the 19th century unfolds, writers become increasingly interested um in creativity on the one hand but also in what their work is doing to the past what their work is doing to these past bits that they're borrowing how their creative energies are transforming these you know these bits this past into something new and then also what the what the stakes are of doing that what the dangers are of doing that like what happens if you you know if you remake the past to to suit your your own artistic and political desires like that on the one hand is something Quite glorious and idealistic and amazing, and on the other hand, like maybe you're going to set a monster loose to run rampant through the world.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so after this like incredibly like layered discussion of Shelley, you move on to to Dickens, and they're presumably not writers that would usually be bracketed together. So, how do you see the bridge from Shelley to Dickens?
0: <laughs> well, I'm also the the co-director of an organization called the Dickens Project, so Dickens had to had to be in this book. <laughs> Somewhere, um, and no, Shelley and Dickens aren't usually grouped together. But, um, but the two Dickens novels that I I talk about in my chapter on Dickens are late novels, Great Expectations and Our Mutual Friend. So, um, so novels that he was writing towards the end of his life, and both of these novels make references to Frankenstein. Both of them make references to galvanism. Um, so there's a there's a quite literal connection that um, that you see in those novels between Shelley, um, Shelley and Dickens. But also, one of the things that I, I'm quite interested in in both the Dickens novels is that like Frankenstein, although in quite different ways, um, they're both really interested in the question of how you narrate a life into being, how trustworthy a narrated life is and whether that life that's been narrated into being can, can be thought of as a life at all. And these are certainly preoccupations in Shelley as she, you know, works her way through the, you know, through the, the, um, through Victor Frankenstein's narrative, through the creature's narrative, and then frames the whole the whole novel with um with Robert Walton's letters to his sister. So so we have an investment in who's telling who's telling whose story and and which stories we believe and and you see that quite a bit in Dickens in Dick these Dickens novels also. Um, so I would say that my Dickens chapter chapter really focuses on the ways that um the ways that these two late novels. Imagine narrative form itself mucking around in graves to bring characters to life, um, conjuring characters from epitaphic inscriptions, especially in great expectations. Um, in our mutual friend, I talk about um narrative confusing life-likeness for actual life. Um and so, you know, the 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 argument that I make about both of these novels is that they are trying to imagine where whether there are any possible formal or generic alternatives to the idea that the realist novel might maybe just be reanimating zombies instead of bringing characters to life or giving characters new life. So I you know I really you know embed these novels in a lot of the same questions that I I'm talking about when I'm talking about the world of Frankenstein in the 19th century I'm just thinking about it in terms of of realist novel forms and you know what happens if you think about characters in realist novels as zombies instead of as people.
1: And then how does Robert Browning fit in here? Because he's presumably a writer who has less of a tendency to be kind of reimagined and have his work be reappropriated after after they were created.
0: <laughs> so Browning, yeah, that is definitely that is definitely true. Um, but Browning is is one of the places along with Bram Stoker that this project began a million years ago when it began. Um, and it began with this crazy um Seven hundred page blank verse poem that Browning wrote called "The Ring in the Book." He published it in 1868, 1869. So right around the time that um that Dickens was was um publishing our mutual friend just a few years later, and um I would imagine that most people have not read "The Ring in the Book" because again it is seven hundred pages of blank verse. Um, but it's this um it's this poem about a 17th century Italian court case that Browning was totally obsessed with involving a count that murdered his young wife because he thought that she was cheating on him um and it 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 tells the story of this court case of the you know of the murder and and its aftermath through a series of testimonies from everyone involved in the case so the book is is just a, a repetition of a lot of the same things but told from different points of view and even the dead wife who somehow magically can still talk gets to gets to tell her story in this in this testimonial book um and excuse me and so you have this um you have this very kind of um salacious murder trial that is the that is the the meat of this poem but then it's framed by this poetic narrator who um who describes the entire project of the poem, which which Browning wrote out of a um, he found what he called the the big yellow book. He found this yellow book of court records in an Italian market, and he read it and got obsessed with it and then decided to write this poem using these documents um, as his as his evidence, as his material. Um, And so this poetic narrator is framing the project of this poem as an effort of reanimation, um, as the idea that. you know that the poem's relationship to the historical documents is is a, a resuscitative relationship that the poet is breathing new life into these fragments um and the language that he's using when he's he's um framing the poem in this way is really reminiscent of both Mary Shelley in Frankenstein and Percy Shelley the way that Percy Shelley is is talking about <clears throat> talking about the the kind of life of poetry and Browning was obsessed with Percy Shelley he was obsessed with romanticism and his his own relationship to romanticism um and all of that is kind of built into the way that this poem frames the the work of poetry and and the work of poetry's relationship to history um and i would say maybe more than any other text that i talk about in in the book as a whole um it's the one that really explicitly describes the relationship between art and the past as a resuscitative relationship um and it's especially interested in the subjective nature of that resuscitative relationship um the way the way that the the kind of artist's own self the artist's own subjectivity um is kind of embedded in in the way it the way he in this case is um is making the past into something new, is bringing the past back to life. So how art and the life of the poet together transform the past through an act of poetic resuscitation. So, you know, again, you know, the the Shelley's and the world of romanticism are are um are rearing their heads in this chapter um and become a kind of through line of these first three chapters, putting these writers together who might might not usually be be figured in the same conversation.
1: So I might ask a kind of a similar question of writers that shouldn't be put together, or at least we wouldn't think we would be put together and that you insist should be. It's really with your discussion towards the end of the book of Yeats and and Bram Stoker that Ireland really starts to overtly come in. But before we move on to them, are there ways that that these three preceding writers, Browning, Dickens and, and Mary Shelley, can also be read within Irish studies or can be kind of brought into conversation with Irishness?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, and this is something I, I I have to admit. I wish i I had done um more in the chapters themselves. It's something that I try to do in the introduction. So one of the arguments that that I'm making across the book as a whole is that the Irish literary revival is really an essential lens for looking back at these earlier Victorian writers and recognizing that that these texts, you know, this this, you know, long, dramatic monologue, these realist novels, these, you know, um, these Frankensteinian adaptation plays that they're all part of a long 19th century necromantic imagination that's preoccupied with the things that we see really kind of rise to the surface in the Irish literary revival. So colonial power dynamics, they're all concerned with questions of political instrumentalism and how how art can or should or shouldn't be a kind of um, political instrument with the, with the resuscitative power of language and with with new literary forms as um as modes of of resuscitation of revival um that they're all also kind of obsessed with an esthetic idealism that is sometimes realized and sometimes not that that these things that I think we we talk about so often when we talk about the literary revival are all also things that are are operating and kind of structuring these these earlier texts that I'm describing as necromantic. And so I try to I try to model, um model this kind of use of the literary revival as a as a way to look backwards as well as a, a, a an object of study in itself. Um I try to do this at my introduction when I use Jane Wilde and Standish O'Grady as my, I would say my primary lenses for um for unfolding the argument of the book. Um, I spend a lot. Maybe too much, but a lot of time with Standish O'Grady in the introduction. He's, you know, a historian who I'm absolutely obsessed with, um, and I talk a lot about his history of Ireland volumes from the 1870s and the 1880s. Um, which, for um, for folks who haven't uh, read Standish O'Grady, he he in these histories he he uses this. Really strange synthesis of English Romanticism. He's absolutely obsessed with with English Romantic poets, um, with Irish legend, um, and with with really kind of of the moment Victorian debates about the viable forms that British historiography will take. So he 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 kind of brings these three things together: English Romanticism, Irish legend, and Victorian debates about history. Um, and so I, I talk about this this synthesis he creates between these these. Three quite disparate things um, as a way to frame my book's chronological movement from early 19th century England to late um late 19th, early 20th century Ireland. Um so this chronological movement forward as also a kind of um recursive reading practice that really relies on the mechanisms of the of the literary revival to understand how deeply the necromancies of the earlier English writers are vested in the political project of. Re- of reanimating and reimagining history, so, um, you know, so I'm not trying to argue that, um, you know, sort of uh, counterfactually that the Irish literary revival influenced these writers that came before it, but I am trying to argue that the Irish literary revival gives me a way of reading these English writers differently than I would otherwise read them. That it, it you know, it's it's this really important. Um, important lens, nodal point vehicle for me to, to see this 19th century, um, this 19th century necromantic imagination functioning, functioning as a whole and as one story.
1: And and is that the kind of connection then that Stoker and Yates themselves also make between the undead and Irishness, or are they doing something new within this larger story?
0: I mean, I would say that, that yes, that's what they're doing. And yes, they're also doing something new. (laughs) Um, so I, um, those are among my favorite my favorite chapters as i said um bram stoker's is, is one of the one of the important places where this this book began um and i i think of my my yeats and stoker chapters as as chapters that kind of balance out each other's relationship to the to the literary revival so my argument is that is that um both yeats and stoker are interested in the literary revival i mean yeats of course it would you know but stoker maybe maybe less clearly um and I think uh, so I approach I approach these two writers in ways that are maybe counterintuitive. So um, so Yates, of course, you know, the Irish poster child for the Irish revival, um, instead of talking about him purely as a kind of revival writer, I contextualize his early work in relation to English museum poetry. Um, so I talk about him in relation to Dante Gabriel Rossetti and Thomas Hardy, who are all um, uh And some other writers who are all really, really concerned with what happens when you put objects from ancient cultures in a a British museum and um, and like what that museum does to those objects. What, you know, what kinds of colonial imaginaries are embedded in that in that museological project, like what happens, colonially speaking, in a museum? These poems are very anxious about it. and so I use this, this museum poetry as a context for thinking about Yeats's early folklore collecting and early poetry as literary museums, um, where Yeats is kind of imagining that collecting and recontextualizing old dead things gives them this new ecstatic life. So you have these English writers who were like, oh, when we put old things in museums, maybe we kill them. And we have Yeats saying, actually, when you put old things in museums, they're amazing. They have new life and it's Irish life. He has this ridiculous bit in, um, in his autobiography where he's looking at, um, uh, Persian statues at, at Artemisia and Masolis. And and he, he's saying, oh my God, it's like they breathe with the life of Connemara. And you're like, what, (laughs) what, that makes no sense. But, but so he was, he was quite interested in, in the idea that, that, kind of moving things out of old context into new contexts had the potential to to bring them back. So the argument I'm, I make about him is that um, the folklore collections and poems that he's writing in the 1880s not only see the Irish literary revival as a kind of vibrant resuscitative museum, um, but also really kind of theorize the impossibility of Celtic myths having any life or life-giving power on their own unless they're dragged out of their graves and into the new um the new poetic forms that he's going to give them. So um so you know I I talk at the very end about how this this um this kind of ecstatic idealism about museum spaces um has gone by the time we get to the municipal gallery revisited, but in these in these early poems he's really excited about about literary form as a kind of um revivalist recontextualization and what that has the power to do. Um then I move from him to to Stoker and my Stoker chapter, um, while well, I talk a little bit about Dracula in it, isn't actually focused on Dracula. It's focused on this 1903 mummy novel that Stoker wrote called The Jewel of Seven Stars, which is one of my um one of my obsession novels. Um, and basically nobody Talks about this mummy novel in relation to Ireland. It doesn't there's no you know Irish jewel of seven stars the way there's an Irish Dracula, um, and it's um, it's this completely bizarre bizarre novel about these British Egyptologists and one kind of like baffled uh, English lawyer who's telling the story who dragged this mummy of a five thousand year old Egyptian queen first back to London and then to a country house in Cornwall and try to resurrect her in their basement using all sorts of electric lights and various accoutrements that they've stolen from her grave. And the reason that they wanna do this is because they think that she has all of this ancient knowledge that um, that died with her and they wanna be able to have all of her ancient knowledge and use it for whatever English purposes best suit them. And as you um, might imagine, the Mummy is not happy about this she She does not want to be resurrected in their basement. Um she doesn't want them to appropriate all of her knowledge. So, um, she ends up, I mean, they manage, so you know, that's positive. But then she kills them all and runs off naked into the Cornwall night to do whatever the hell she's gonna go do. um and so the. the the it's a great novel it's it's completely weird it's not a novel that seems to have anything to do with ireland like it doesn't have the markers of irishness that that i think that we have learned to very easily see in dracula but the argument that i make about it is that stoker is writing this novel at a moment when irish nationalist and egyptian nationalist movements have a lot to say to each other when there's a lot of people moving back and forth between these two nationalist movements um when um quite you know quite literally with activists kind of traveling back and forth and also um kind of thinking together about um about what anti colonial resistance is going to look like um and when both of these countries at the same time are turning to their ancient pasts and trying to figure out the best ways um to marshal these pasts in the interests of national revival in the interest of national cohesion and in the interests of um of kind of anti colonial um Anti-colonial force, and so what I what I suggest is that you know, and and Stoker you know was aware of this. A lot of the a lot of the, these national movements on both sides were related to to theaters, and Stoker was working in theaters. I mean, there there um, there are important important overlaps that Stoker would have been aware of, as well as being you know quite invested in the the world of a kind of colonialist Egyptology at the end of the nineteenth century. Um, so the argument that I make about this book is that um is that reviving ancient egypt in it is um is also a, a well that let's see what's what's a better way to put it um that this novel about reviving ancient egypt and all of its all of its you know glorious past is also a novel about the irish literary revival that you know that these two um these two revivalist movements are entwined and so you know reviving a mummy is a way of maybe thinking about um reviving ancient celtic legend um, but it's a novel that's really deeply skeptical about the strategies of this kind of literary revival, about the appropriative and, you know, maybe the dis- disfiguring nature of this kind of historical imagination um, and about the danger that reanimating the past in this way can pose to the lives that that matter in the present. And so, you know, on the one hand, in the Yates chapter, we have Yates very idealistic about about what. What the literary revival can do, what its potential is, you know, how it can how it can breathe new life into a present day nation. And and on the flip side, we have Stoker, you know, maybe 15 ish years later saying, actually, there are things that are that are pretty, pretty unseemly about about the mechanisms of the literary revival, about what this resuscitative imagination is doing to history, and what it's doing to us in in kind of appropriating these histories that might not belong to us.
1: Well, as I think all of this shows, like this is a you found a a really rich way to read and reread sometimes familiar texts and familiar moments, and, and sometimes unfamiliar texts. Thanks so much for telling us about your great book.
0: Absolutely, thank you so much for for letting me have a chance to do it. Bye.